Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I am your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today I'm joined with a good friend of mine, Will Baxter. Hi, Will. Hello. How's it going? It's good. Are you excited? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Always excited about murder. (laughs) Will said he's got his Hercule Poirot hat on. It's more like a bandana, but yeah, I'm good to go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So today, we're actually doing a Hercule Poirot story. It's called Peril at End House. And so it's one of Agatha Christie's more famous novels. Mostly, I think her famous ones are always just like super complicated. So get excited for that. Perfect. I'm ready to be thoroughly confused. <laughs> what's your what's your whodunit murder mystery solving experience, Will? Um, non-existent. I mean, except for like when I'm watching like TV shows and I just show yes. it's him, it's that guy. And every person that appears on every cop show. That counts. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Knives Out or Murder on the Orient Express? No. I think I listened to a D&D podcast that was based off of Murder on the Orient Express, but other than that, no. Close enough, close enough. All right, should we get started? Yeah, let's go. So Parallel End House was written in 1932, or I guess published in 1932, and it's kind of interesting just because this is really early on in Agatha Christie's career, like she's 12 years in of 50 or something ridiculous. For some reason, I thought you were going to say 12 years old, but... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I think I think she's married. She might have a kid by now. I don't know. Mm. But it's interesting because Hercule Poirot has already retired in the book series at this point. Like he's he's done being a sleuth. Uh, just just one more case. And that's what just he says for the next fifty cases. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably what Agatha or what uh, yeah Agatha Christie was saying. Like every book too. It's like yeah. Uh, I don't want to write anymore, but I really want to like add that new element to my kitchen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I need more money. <laughs> <laughs> so it starts. It starts with Hercule Poirot, and actually Captain Hastings is visiting. He, um, for a few books, I think, had gone to live. I don't know somewhere not in England with his new wife, and so he hadn't been on some cases. But he's visiting, and so they're both on vacation in this place called Saint Lou in the south of England. Um, and they describe it describe it as this like beautiful seaside place. They're comparing it to the Riviera, which gets mentioned a lot in Christie's books. And you know what? I never look up where it is, but it's high praise. Like if you're if you're talking about the Riviera, you're <laughs> rich. You are filthy rich. So mm, I too love the Riviera. <laughs> so they're sitting on the terrace outside the hotel, kind of overlooking the garden. And Poirot is talking about how he's retired and he's been written <laughs> he's been written by the Home Secretary of England asking him to help with a case. And Hastings is like, well, you have to take it. It's the Home Secretary. Like, that's so important. And Poirot's like, no, no, not important enough for me. Like, I'm retired. <laughs> I'm I'm too important for the Home Secretary. Exactly. Yeah. He he he's, he keeps Throughout all of his books, or all of Agatha Christie's books, he calls himself modest and says he's like a super modest person. But that's I mean, so does everybody else. I'm the most yeah, modest man so. in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he kind of says that he would only take a case if like a bullet struck him, struck the wall above his head. Um, of course, he'd investigate that. And um, Hastings is kind of smiling at the analogy because a pebble had just kind of like hit the wall 
beside oh, them. And I, I was her. really hoping for the bullets to start flying. Or maybe this was going to be a really <laughs> short book. He's like, yeah, I'm not <laughs> taking it. The end. Either that or he dies. And everything <laughs> else was written from Hercule Poirot's perspective as a ghost. <laughs> that would be an interesting take. <laughs> so Poirot, at that point, he kind of gets up and goes to walk into the garden. But as he's going out down the stairs, he like trips over a root. And there had been a girl just coming up the path. And so both her and Hastings help Poirot back to the table because he's hurt his ankle. Because he's old. Because he's old. <laughs> he's old and retired. <laughs> so they get to talking. They end up having cocktails with the girl. And she's, you know, lively and young. And so talking to them and tells them she actually lives in town at End House, which is this like beautiful old mansion up on the hill, kind of near the hotel they're staying at. Mm -hmm. Um, And she tells them that she's had three near escapes from death in the last three days. And she kind of calls them accidents and laughs it off. Like, just accidents. Like, it's no big deal. I, I too, almost die several times a week. (laughs) (laughs) So she doesn't get more into it because at this moment, this man comes around the corner kind of calling out, Nick, Nick. And he's clearly calling for this woman who had introduced herself as Miss Buckley. Um, So she gets up to go. And she introduces the man as this guy called Commander Challenger. And he's like very clearly part of the English Navy, like military gentleman. Yo, Commander Challenger is the sickest name ever. Yeah, I know. It's really awesome. So Hastings is also, Hastings is a captain. He was also in the war. He had been like invalided out of the war. So he immediately likes this guy because he like, you know, I guess military guy recognizes military guy. Mm. Um, And so they leave. And she by accident leaves behind her hat. And Poirot kind of points out to Hastings, he's like kind of laughing to himself, and he points out the bullet hole that is through the brim of her hat. Then he picks up the what Hastings had thought had been a pebble that had hit the wall, and in fact, it's a bullet that Poirot had picked up. So we're here. The excitement is so, starting. Wait, so how do you mistake a, a pebble falling for a bullet? <laughs> or a bullet falling for a pedal, pebble? Good question. They kind of describe it as it's like a small, quiet pistol. And so you wouldn't have, like, it's so tiny you wouldn't have noticed. I don't, uh, I, I yes, don't shoot pistols guns. Pistols known for no their idea. silence. <laughs> this is the 30s. Did they have silencers? It's like, a, it looks like a super old-timey gun. Like, it's really tiny. Mm. I don't know. Okay, I'm picturing old-timey gun with a, a brand new silencer on it. They just invented it. They screwed it on and bam. Yeah. Silent as there a pebble go. falling to the ground. There you go. So that's what happens. And so Poirot had hoped, you kind of get this idea that him tripping, quote unquote, was all this bruise to be able to talk to the girl because <laughs> he kind of says he had hoped to use the hat as an, as an excuse to go visit her at End House and kind of get more information out of her. But sadly, her and her friends were having lunch at the same hotel. And so because Poirot and Hastings are having lunch there, he has to kind of go over and return her out to her at that point. But Poirot, he, he kind of recognizes the danger. Like, he's like, bullshit, these aren't accidents. This is someone Wait. trying to kill her. Poirot is married, right? That's the... He's in this area with his new wife? Hastings is married. Hastings is married. But wife is nowhere around. She's Wife doesn't isn't going to factor into it. Poirot has never been married. <laughs> they can just go after every, like, oh, this, this beautiful woman left behind her hat. I, she must want me to return it to her, like... <laughs> Whatever yes. they want, because yes. their their wives aren't around. Well, that and Hercule Poirot has this idea again. He's super modest and thinks that the <laughs> entire world knows who he is, so it shouldn't be a problem for him to go to someone's house because they know who he is already. 
<laughs> even though this is before the internet, et cetera, et cetera. Also, how do you, how did people back in old timey days recognize someone who was famous? So I, to give a description of Poirot, he, he, he's always described as like a short gentleman with an egg shaped head who's slightly balding and has incredible mustaches that no one ever would wear except for him. That sounds exactly like who I want randomly approaching me at my house with a hat that I accidentally forgot somewhere. <laughs> well, just a, a hunk just... and a half right there. <laughs> yeah, he gets made fun of for his must- mustaches, but he's so proud of them that he doesn't notice it. It's like they're just jealous. <laughs> I mean, basically anyone I've ever met with a mustache, so pretty yeah. on character. You're, you're, like, you're right, you're right. <laughs> so he ends up... He ends up going straight, he just goes straight to the table and he basically asks her point blank for an appointment. Like he pulls her aside from her friends and asks for the appointment. And while he's doing that, Hastings kind of sits down with um, her friends, which she's kind of, she's sitting with Challenger, um, Commander Challenger, the Navy gentleman guy. And then there's another, what they call an exquisite young fair man. Like he's like a little bit lankier. Um, and then there's a girl that they describe, they keep describing her like a Madonna girl. Um, and her face, like her features are kind of washed out. A Madonna girl. A Madonna girl. I'm going to write that down. That feels important. I think, I think you just kind of get this idea. It's like a a pre, like a beautiful or stereotypically beautiful girl, like blonde hair, but they're calling like, they're saying her, she's like very pale looking as well, or maybe a little spaced out. Um, (laughs) so those are, those are the three, those are the three friends sitting at the table and the friends kind of say that Nick is like a a classic liar. And, um, she had been lying the other day about these accidents she'd got into. And one of them was, um, that the car, the brakes on her car had been, um, tampered with and the, the, um, quote unquote, exquisite young man, he says, like he's a car guy and he kind of like points out to his like fancy big red car sitting out on the the driveway and says like her she's lying her brakes weren't tapered with tampered with i would know Uh, exquisite young man definitely did it he's a car guy he knows how to cut (laughs) brake lines he and he's even like trying to downplay like nobody tried to kill you by cutting your brake lines you silly girl like who would do that So it, they don't talk for very long because they Poro's just asking for the meeting, but they schedule it for 6.30 that night um, after Nick was going out for like a drive with her friends. And so Poro was kind of a little worried. Like He's like, I, I, I want to talk to her right now. I don't want there to be another accident. But because she's with all her friends, I'm sure it will be fine. She's not making it to the meeting. <laughs> so they they walk up the path. They go in through end house again. It's kind of near the hotels so there, and it's near the hotel is on the beach, and so so is the house. It's like on the waterfront. So there's like a bunch of ways you can get to end house. You can go up from there's like a private beach. You can go in through the main road. There's like a gate on the side for um, servicing the house. I'm not sure, but they go up the main way. And as they walk up the pass, they pass um, like a middle aged guy who's out gardening. Um, and then a middle-aged woman opens the door. And this is this is the um, like housemaid, and her name's Ellen. Ellen tells them that B- Mrs. Buckley isn't home yet, so they can wait in the drawing room for her before while she returns. I feel like they're going to be waiting for that, like a long time. <laughs> so surprisingly, she does make it back from the drive. <gasps> all, all right. Amazing. <laughs> 
And she kind of, she thinks the idea that someone is trying to kill her is absolutely ridiculous. And she kind of is making fun of Poirot uh, and being like, don't, like, it's just, it's fine. They're just accidents. Like, who would want to kill me? I don't have any, like, I don't even have any money. Um, and she doesn't know, like, Hercule Poirot asks, like, oh, surely you know who I am. And she kind of, like, gets, like, this vacant look on her face. And she goes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he goes, I'm the, the film producer. And she goes, oh, right, the film producer. Yes, of course I know who you are. And then he, like, calls her bluff and goes, you liar. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you, just the, the idea that he would just be like, oh, you don't actually know who I am, like, uh, like I'm a film producer and then lie to her and then just see if she'll like go along with it yeah. because he thinks he's so famous that like she yeah. should know who he is. Oh man, exactly. the, this guy. So that's, this is all the time. So even she, even when he shows her the bullet hole in her own hat, she continues to downplay it and go like, I'm sure it was an accident. Crazy. I feel like, <laughs> but maybe in this time more bullets were going astray all over the place. I don't know. <laughs> Oh yeah, bullets just flying astray everywhere, you know. It's <laughs> how things are. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> then she kind of talks about her name. So everyone calls her Nick, which kind of seems like a maybe not a weird name in this time, but m- maybe a stranger name for a girl. Her actual name is Magdala Buckley, but her grandfather, her grandfather's name was Nick, and everyone in town called him Old Nick. And because she followed him around wherever he went, everyone in town called her Young Nick. So it was Old Nick and Young Nick. And that's where she got her nickname from. Interesting. So then she tells them about the accidents that she had. So the first one was um, there was a heavy picture above her bed frame. And she had got up in the middle of the night because she thought she heard a door close. And when she came back, the picture had fallen on the bed. Like a shirt, it definitely would have killed her. And then the second one was a boulder she was like bathing by the beach and a boulder had rolled down the hill and narrowly missed her while she was in the water. And then something had gone, the third one was something had gone wrong with the brakes of her car. Um, and she kind of goes like, I don't know, like I went to the mechanic, they just kind of said a mechanical thing was unscrewed. You know, how, yeah, you know, how mechanical all cars things. work. <laughs> cars, cars and stuff. I'm sure that if, if Michael were on this episode, he'd be just livid. <laughs> I, I told him about it as I was reading it. I was like, How, what do you think of this description of um, a mechanical thing in the car? <laughs> just just needs to be a mechanical thing. We don't need to go into any of that nope. stuff. Nope. Not important. It's a murder mystery, not a car problem. <laughs> not a mechanical Except, engineering mystery. Nope. So then she goes to show them. They kind of ask her about the gun. She's like, oh, yeah, like my, my, my dad had a gun in it. Like, so... Her basically her whole family is dead or has died over the last however many years. But she's like, yeah, my dad had a pistol, a Mauser pistol. It was in this drawer, and she opens the drawer, and of course, the gun is missing. Mm, perfect. What would a mystery be without a missing gun? I mean, if they found the gun, then case solved. The gun did it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh that's the state of the world right now. I think. <laughs> yeah. I should say before I get too much farther, I actually hadn't read this book before this week and so as I was reading it I was also guessing who I thought it was which I won't say anything now I'll wait till the end but just just so you know I was also trying to guess (laughs) okay cool so this new development of the gun being missing actually starts to make Nick Buckley a little nervous and to think more seriously like she's kind of taking Poirot's suggestions to heart a little bit more and so when Poirot suggests that the gun was supposed to be found in her hand. Like she was supposed to have been shot and then the gun found in her hand and people would have just suggested suicide. 
um, and her friends, like she was kind of saying, yeah, that's fair. Like I have, I've been sleeping kind of badly and I've been a little bit nervy lately. Like I, my friends would have said so if, if I had been found dead, so that mm. kind of adds up. And then she talks about growing up in the house um, and her grandfather had raised her, et cetera, et cetera. He had died six years ago and left her the house. And she only had one close relative left who was a cousin on her mom's side of the family called Charles Vise. And he was a lawyer in the area. Like he lived near there. And so he like helped her out and um, was helping her, you know, pay up. Like he, they had to mortgage the house and he helped her with that, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I was going to say it was him, but it seems like he might be too helpful for to, to be a murderer. <laughs> Possibly. Charles also kind of makes her, there's a lodge on the property that I, I think when they say that, it means like when the house was in its heyday and people actually had money, the gardeners would have stayed in the lodge and then worked like they wouldn't have had to live in the house. But anyways, there's a lodge and he makes her like um, rent it out. So there's an Australian couple that's living in the lodge at that moment and paying rent. Oh, yeah. So the other thing is, is that her friends are down for the weekend because she was planning to have a party on Monday. It was like the regatta week or something. So they were going to oh, be fireworks. They're, they're doing some rowing. Yeah. Not, I'm not her, of... but they were, they were, they were down for the fireworks, I think. The Riviera is definitely a rich people kind of place if they're doing a regatta there. Well, so this isn't, this isn't Sorry. the Riviera. This Riviera is England's version. <laughs> 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 yes, correct. So then she kind of talks about her friends and introduces them all. So Freddie or Frederica Rice is her best friend. She was the Madonna looking girl from the day before or from earlier that day. Um, and she says that she had came in, she'd gotten to St. Lou yesterday um, and was kind of hard up for money because she had a husband who like when they got married or something like that, she'd given the husband a bunch of her money and then the husband had run away with it all or something. Like it's just something ridiculous and kind of sad for her. Damn, unfortunate. And then the the kind of um, thin, light, fair guy, his name is Jim Lazarus. And he was the son of a famous art dealer. Um, and it kind of seems, or she thinks that he wants to marry Freddie, but hasn't been able to because... Freddie is still technically married and the husband has disappeared, so she can't get a divorce. Wait, uh, who's Freddie? Freddie is that the girl, the Madonna-looking girl. Freddie. Oh, Rice. and the exquisite man, Jim Lazarus, wants to marry Freddie. Yeah, but they, they can't get married. or they, there's, It's kind of more like hints of marriage, but it couldn't happen now anyways because Freddie's actual husband is like run away, and so she can't get a divorce, and she would have to get a divorce to get married again. Okay, cool. So... Who knows? Who knows what's gonna happen? I can't just start predicting that people are gonna die. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, go for it, but <laughs> get off. Wait, let me let me finish introducing everyone first. Okay. So Commander Challenger is the next guy, and we've already been introduced to him. And it seems that he wants to marry Nick Buckley, but Nick kind of says, "Like, what's the point?" Like, basically, she's not interested in him. She just said she'd get bored of him. So at least she's straightforward. Damn, that's that's a that's a rough deal for for Mr. Challenger. Yeah, poor Mr. Challenger. Also, I love how in like old timey novels, everyone is just like like we're not gonna date or anything. Like we're not really that interested in each other, but let's get married. Yeah, no, it's it's constant. The, in in any of the Christie books, either someone faints or you marry your cousin or something <laughs> like that happens. Sounds like New Brunswick. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so it's kind of a uh uh 
preventative measure, Poirot convinces Nick to invite a friend of hers to stay over and sleep with her. And um, Nick kind of is like, oh, well, Freddie will stay with me. And Poirot's like, no, no, I need not someone that's that close with you. Like, they need to be removed from the situation. Mm -hmm. So she invites her her cousin, whose name is Maggie Buckley, um, to stay over and just, like stay, stay in her room. Uh, and then it comes up that she had written a will six months ago. She had had like an operation to get her appendix out. And um, she'd been like suggested to that she should write a will just in case beforehand. Because old timey medicine. Yeah, just in case. And so she says that the end, end house itself would go to her cousin, Charles Vise, the lawyer, and that everything else she'd left to Freddie, except she kind of said, basically, like, I have no money. Like, my grandfather had been a gambler, and he he left very little except for the house. So, you know, she'd get whatever she gets, but it wouldn't be and, as much. Wait, and so everything else goes to her, her pal, Freddie? Yeah, her, her best friend, Freddie. Mm, suspicious. <laughs> Maybe, except there's no money, so something's got to turn up. Um, and then at some point in the conversation, she kind of said that Mr. Lazarus, as like an art dealer, had offered her 50 pounds for the portrait of her grandfather that was in the drawing room, but she had turned him down. Wait, that's not the portrait that fell on her, right? No. Or the portrait that almost fell on her? There, yeah. There seems to be several pictures throughout the house, but the no, the portrait is in the... The, port, the picture that almost fell on her was in the bedroom, and the portrait of her grandfather is in the drawing room or living room or something. Cool, 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 cool. A lot of portraits, a lot of people. I love it. <laughs> I'm, I expect even more complexity. You betcha. <laughs> Just you wait, my gosh. It's going to be a long episode. <laughs> Especially with all of my interjections. Yeah. But we're going to have some fun, though. That's what I hope. So, Hastings tells... I think they leave the house, and they're heading back to the hotel, and Hastings tells Poirot about the friend's account. Kind of, he's like, uh, like that Freddie was saying that Nick is a liar, and Poirot kind of, he, he just basically says, like, I don't believe it. Like, either either they, they're trying to throw us off the scent or they just don't know what's going on fully. So on their way back, they, they go to visit the mechanic of that car um, that had the brakes cut. And the mechanic's like, yeah, it was deaf tampered with on purpose. This was not an accident. And it would have been a really quick job. Like, whatever they, Hastings describes it as the mechanic tells them all the ins and outs. And then him and Poirot understood none of it except to say, that it had been tampered with. <laughs> the, as, as all good mechanics should do. Yes. <laughs> um, then Paro goes into the post office to send a telegram, but he doesn't, he like re refuses to tell Hastings what it is or to who it was. And that's like typical Poirot leaving Hastings out of things and Hastings getting really mad that he's being left out. Wait, what did uh, Hastings get left out of? Uh, Poirot sends a telegram to who knows where and who knows who. Okay. So if Hastings gets left out of something, we, the reader, also gets left out of it. I, my, my prediction is he predicted the murderer right now, and he sent a telegram to somewhere else in England <laughs> saying, the murderer is this person, and I'll reveal it at this time. And then, bam, that's we're going to find that out at the very end of the novel. Excellent. And so we have 170 pages to go before that <laughs> <laughs> the, no murders have happened yet but Poirot knows yeah yeah they get back to the hotel and there's like a dance happening that evening and so Nick and all her friends are there and that just means they get like more of an opportunity to see them and see what they're like and Poirot takes the opportunity to tell Freddie that Nick's life is in danger um, and he shows her the bullet that had gone through her hat 
And then he also questions her about staying with friends in, she kind of had said before she had arrived in St. Louis, she had been staying in another part of the world called Tavistock. And basically she says, yeah, yeah, of course I was staying there, like what yada, yada, yada. And when Poirot leaves, he tells Hastings that he can tell she's lying. So she wasn't in, he doesn't think she was in Tavistock, but she's not sure where she was. Freddie was not in Tavistock? Tavistock. Tavistock. The, the, the location isn't important. Basically, she said she was staying with friends in a different part of the world. Yeah. But Poirot knows that that's a lie. Because Poirot the she's is it. the best truth detector of all. Yeah. He's like, he's like, um, have you seen the, 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 the Sherlock TV series with yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch? He's like yeah. that, where he like, he sees their eye twitch and goes, they're lying. <laughs> he also has the benef- benefit of being basically omnipotent as a story device. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, continue. So the next morning, they take the path down to the beach. So now they're going kind of in the other way to end house and they come in through the gate on like the side yard. And what happens is they're able to make it all the way to Nick's bedroom without anyone noticing that they were, that they came into the yard or even came into the house. So Poirot's kind of saying literally anyone could have cut the wire on the picture frame to make it fall or taken the gun or like anything for that matter. I'm curious how you would rig a picture frame to fall like later at some point. Because obviously... If, if they just cut it, then it's going to fall while they're there, but she was not in the room. Yeah. So how do you rig it so that it falls, like, later while she's still in the room? So Poirot, they're, like, the, the Nick had already gotten it fixed, and she thinks that the contractor had, take, like, thrown out the old um, hanger, or whatever it was called. But basically it was hanging, it was like a wire frame, a wire on the back of the frame. Um, and Poirot kind of suggests that you could cut individual strands of the wire to, like, reduce its integrity and make it kind of like come apart hours later. Ah, necking begins. Yes, you (laughs) are right. So they're kind of talking in Nick's bedroom and as they come down the stairs, they run into this like angry man and he's kind of going like, what are you doing in the house? Like you're robbing the house, yada, yada. But it turns out they're able to calm him down and it turns out he's the neighbor that was spoken of by Nick. That's um, the neighbors that are, staying in the um, the lodge on the property and paying rent. Oh, uh, the Australian man? The Australian man, yeah. So he's mad at first, but when he hears Paro's name, he recognizes the name, and so wow. he invites them. I know. So Paro is, you know, <laughs> it might just be world renowned, but only in Australia. So, like, every he's, like, doing all these crimes, or solving all these crimes in England, and, like, nobody recognizes him, and he's always mad about it. Like, you think I'm a movie director, blah, blah, blah. And, like... Yeah. <laughs> meet someone from Australia and he's like, oh yeah, you're really big over there, mate. Yeah, I love you. <laughs> yeah, so ba- basically he kind of tells him like, can you please come home with me because my wife is an invalid, like she's paralyzed, but she loves detective stories and she knows who you were and she'd love to meet you. And so Poirot is not going to pass up an opportunity, one, to brag about himself and two, to <laughs> talk to more people and get more information. So they go there. Beautiful. Separately, I just want to throw out that I am extremely suspicious of Mr. Lassie and also of Freddie. I think they're they're in it together. That's my prediction There's right now. Because okay. Lassie wants that that sick painting and yeah. Freddie I, I don't know her motive yet, but she just seems very suspicious. She's for in on it. Okay. We'll uh we'll keep that in mind and maybe flesh it out as we get more information. Okay. 
So the reason that the Australian neighbor had been in the house is basically, like, Nick has talked about this before. They were big gardeners, and they would just casually bring over vegetables to Nick all the time. Like, if they had extra cucumbers or tomatoes, they'd just pop over. Cool. That's so kind. Yeah. Also, I no longer suspect them, because if they wanted to kill her, then they would just poison the cucumbers. Easy. Ah. They wouldn't need to go through all this ridiculous accident stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they go to meet the invalid wife, and she, they go on and on and on, like, they're, she's uber friendly, but basically the only important thing is that she says that Nick's cousin Charles Vice, the lawyer, they say that he was in love with Nick and wanted to marry her. Ah, classic, (laughs) classic cousins marrying cousins, gotta keep it within the family, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's here. (laughs) Uh, mystery trope one. (laughs) So the next, the next day, so we were, it was just Sunday when they visited the neighbors and the next, the following morning is Monday. Nick comes to visit Poirot at Poirot's request. I think he calls her and she looks tired and worried. Um, This whole, this whole thing is kind of taking a toll on her. And she shows them the telegram that she'd gotten from her cousin, Maggie, who says that she'll arrive at 5.30 PM that evening. Um, And she also says it's fine for the man, Poirot had requested that there was some man that he wanted to come look, take a look at something in the house. Who requested that he wanted a man to come? Poirot requested that Nick let this man into her house to look at something. Okay. And so Nick Nick is asking, yeah, mysterious man. Nick is asking what's it for. And Poirot says it was just a matter of opinion, something he wanted to know. Interesting. I want to know it now too. We, we all want to know it. Hastings is probably sitting there like, why don't you tell me anything? I suspect that this is related to the telegram and that maybe the telegram was not a prediction of a murder. <laughs> I think you might be right. <laughs> so then Poirot says he thinks she is holding something back from telling them, but she refuses to say anything. Or she says that that's not true. She refutes his like statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Poirot asks her if she would ever sell the house. Um, and she says that she doesn't want to, she really loves living there, but for a lot of money, she would sell the place. Like she wouldn't, she wouldn't, for the right price, she wouldn't turn it down. He's going to give him an offer he can't refuse. Yeah. That that kind of price. Exactly. So then they go to see, Nick leaves and they go to see the lawyer cousin, Charles, and they kind of describe him as like a mundane looking guy. Um, and he like, quote unquote, helps Poirot like Poirot had gone there with the um he had made up a story about how he needed help with some lawyer problem whatever that could be maybe he wanted to buy property I don't know he makes something up and he he's able to bring up Nick's name and say like oh yes I met Nick in the at the hotel and she said you were her cousin and whatever whatever so I came to see you and so Charles says that Nick had a fanatical devotion to the house and she would never sell it so Poirot and Hastings are kind of talking afterwards and going, who's lying? Is it Charles or Nick? Like who, who's right and why would one of them lie? Because a fanatical devotion is much different than for the right price I'd sell. Interesting. I don't know anyone that like has a fanatical devotion to anything like that in real life. No, neither do I. They also find out that he was out of the office on Saturday afternoon, which was when the f- shot was fired at Nick Buckley. He's in the office. He was out of the office. Out of the office. So they're not, like, Paro's not saying he did it. He's just saying he had opportunity. Mm, suspicious. Mm-hmm. 
Then they go back to End House for the evening. They've been invited over for the party that Nick was having on Monday night. And what it's supposed to be is they're just going to have dinner with a bunch of people and then watch the fireworks from end, like the, the cliff at End House that has a really good view of the pier. So we'll have a really good view of the fireworks. Party at End House sounds very much like some kind of trope in like a, a college TV show or movie. Like, party at End House, everybody. Like, oh, I want to go to a party at End House. Just any party. <laughs> in this time. End House is going to... And I was going to beat up Sigma Phi. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Not Sigma Phi. <laughs> but we love Sigma Phi. Continue. Maggie has arrived, um, the cousin, and she's basically, Hastings kind of describes her as boring. Nick had said she was boring and Hastings just agreeing. Yeah, she doesn't really hold conversation well. Uh, and then the other people that come are Freddie and Lazarus. And then George Challenger was invited, but he kind of seems to be late or he doesn't come on time. And, and I think they kind of said something to the story of like he had to work late that day. So they weren't sure when he would be there. And so they're all like chit-chatting in the drawing room before dinner. And they're talking of this guy whose name is Michael Sutton. And he was basically, I, I'm thinking of him as like Amelia Earhart. Like it's someone who went on this around the world journey and then had gotten lost in the Pacific. And they don't know yet if he's dead or not. Like, they're still trying to find the plane, but, like, authorities haven't found it yet. Michael Sutton is the true Amelia Earhart. He was actually just in drag all along. Yeah. It's it's weird because it's basically the Amelia Earhart story, but they also, in the book, talk about, they're like, oh, who, what's that woman's name who's um, the, the big into flying? They never say her name, but it's, like, clearly <laughs> Amelia Earhart. <laughs> So anyways, I should I should look up when when did Amelia Earhart go missing? Okay, during an attempt to make a circumnavigational flight of the globe in 1937, she goes missing. In this book, when did I say it was written? 1932. In 1932. Oh my god! So, Miss Marple predicts Amelia Earhart going missing. Just like Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> Just like how Poirot predicted the murder all along. Yes. Agatha Christie like, pre- predicted Amelia Earhart going missing five years before her disappearance. Impressive. Very Maybe impressive. the way that she comes up with all of her stories is she's actually the one committing the crimes. Mmm. <laughs> wow, that's a conspiracy theory I have not heard that Agatha Christie was behind Amelia Earhart's disappearance. <laughs> I'm going to start flaring this from the rooftops and posting on all <laughs> of the forums. <laughs> Good. I'm going to become an Amelia Earhart Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie truther. As you should. Seems to, I'm <laughs> glad someone's going to do it. Plus, how can you circumnavigate a flat globe? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Will. I'm moving on. <laughs> Enough of this. <laughs> so the other the other thing is that um, Nick, is, Nick has come down. She had been wearing like a house coat and then finally she gets dressed and she comes down in this black dress and she's wearing a beautiful old, they call it like a scar- scarlet Chinese shawl. Um, and she doesn't, she kind of says she doesn't normally wear black, but her, like the dress she'd ordered hadn't arrived yet or something. Wait, like did that. you say shawl or chawl? Shawl. Okay, cool. I thought you were just being real fancy with like, it's a, it's not a shawl. It's, it's a chawl. <laughs> Oh, maybe I did, and I, I did it by accident. No, Scarlet Chinese oh, okay. shawl. It's like a red shawl. And 
so they, they're having dinner and then Nick leaves at some point, like she says, to take a phone call. She's gone for a while. And then the guests, the rest of the guests start arriving. So it's kind of like a close knit party for dinner. And then there's like a dozen more people arrive for the fireworks. And this includes the Australian neighbor, Mr. Croft and cousin Charles Fies. Wait, so the Australian neighbor, Mr. Croft, but not as his wife. Who's no, because his, yeah, his wife is paralyzed. So they don't, it's, it's kind of interesting. They never call them wheelchairs. They call them invalid chairs. <laughs> uh, we can't, we can't put, we can't look at this with the lens of today and <laughs> think about the language that was used. <laughs> we just yeah, have to it's, accept it's it and move weird. on. I don't, I'm, I'm looking up because I wonder what a quote unquote invalid chair looks like. Like, is it a wheelchair? Yeah, it's just a wheelchair. Okay, cool. I like it. Kind it's, of a, it's basically, it's like an actual chair of the day and they've just put wheels on it. So like they just, <laughs> they just have like a, a plastic folding, not, not plastic because it's the, the old timey days, but like a, a crappy like a wicker chair. chair. Like a wicker, no, like a wicker, <laughs> a wicker chair. chair and they just <laughs> taped casters to the bottom. Like, here you go. Basically, I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit, but that's what it feels like. No, that's okay. You're not exaggerating. This is a hundred percent legit. <laughs> Okay, got it. So she, anyway, she doesn't come out for the fireworks, but Mr. Croft um, arrives and Charles, and then there's, they say a dozen people. So there's a bunch of kind of randoms that won't factor into the story. So just kind of, just, there's a lot of people. That's all that's important. So it's not a close-knit party. The close-knit party was like dinner. So that was Poirot, Hastings, Lazarus, Jim Lazarus, Freddie Rice. The the close-knit party with this man that I've never met who claims to be famous. Exactly. Yes, that one. And then for the after dinner for the fireworks, a dozen people arrived. And that includes Cousin Charles and neighbor Mr. Croft. Cool. So where was I? Right. So they go out to see the fireworks and they kind of say they're splendid. They're awesome. You know, as fireworks are, they were just as good back then as they were now, apparently. (laughs) And partway through, Maggie says that she's gotten cold. So she's going to go in for her jacket. And after she leaves, Nick kind of says, like, yeah, this, I didn't think, I thought this shawl would be warm enough, but it's not. I'm going to go back in for a better coat. So they go, um, and Poirot and Hastings I start to talk as well. And they kind of, Poirot is complete, Poirot always complains of the cold. It's like his, part of his, like, character <laughs> is to be cold all the time. Uh, so he says he's just, he's, he's done with fireworks. He's going to go inside. And so Hastings goes with him. And as they're walking to the house, um, in front of them, they see a figure huddled on the ground, wrapped in a scarlet Chinese shawl. And so it's just this, like, you know, your your breath gets caught in your chest. Like, okay, what's happened? Wait, there's a, so there's a figure on the ground wrapped in the scarlet Chinese shawl, huddled up in this in the in the red shawl. And so they go to the body immediately, um, like going like, oh my god, they got to Nick, like the whoever it was. Like I, part of us kind of going, I wasn't able to save her. But then all of a sudden, Nick's voice rings out. Nick's voice rings out calling for Maggie and they flip the body over and it's Maggie, cousin Maggie Buckley. And and she was killed because she was wearing the scarlet shawl because she was cold or something. And they were trying to get Nick. Yeah. So Nick will explain later that, yeah, so they couldn't find Maggie's coat. And so she had told her just to take her shawl. And Maggie had gone out before her while Nick was still looking for her other coat. Um, and yeah, it seems like someone thought it was Nick and shot the wrong person. And it, this is dark right now, right? 
yeah it's nice oh it's the fireworks right so yeah it's 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 late yeah so as in it would be really difficult to ascertain who who did the shooting but there's someone who knew that like that nick was wearing the shawl at the time so they're probably one of the party goers at the very least yeah yeah that's what they say. They kind of, at, at this point, Hercule Poirot is like, this is not an outsider. This is definitely someone within the party. And it kind of goes like, um, any anyone could have done it. Like Hastings is like, well, it couldn't have been anyone watching the fireworks. Like we would have seen them leave. And Poirot asks him, well, did you, can you say for certain that you saw everyone the entire time? He's And Hastings kind of realizes, no, any, like literally anyone, including myself, could have left for a few minutes and no one would have noticed. Also, the fireworks are going off, so no one would have heard the shots because mm. it would have just sounded really like the fireworks. I mean, not that anyone would have heard the shot either way because it's a really quiet uh, Mouser pistol. It's quiet <laughs> I, I'm just remembering, I didn't write this down, and that's why I didn't remember it when you were asking before. The reason they say they didn't hear the shot that first one um, by the garden is because they're kind of pointing out that there's speedboats on the water and the mm. speedboats are super loud. Yeah, and their engines are probably misfiring all the time because they're engines that were built in, like, the 1920s. So, like, who knows what those things sounded like. Exactly. So that's kind of the idea they give. So take take that how you you will. It's a story, though. So, you know, what Agatha Christie says goes. Mm, Exactly. (laughs) Wow, I feel feel very close to Hercules Poirot right now uh, (laughs) with his uh, ascertaining that it had to be someone at the party who would have mistaken Mm -hmm. You agree. So Hastings brings Nick into the house and calls the police at Poirot's orders while Poirot guards the body to make sure no one touches it. And um, while he's there, the maid Ellen is kind of, she's being very inquisitive, kind of going like, even before she knows that someone's been killed, she's asking, was someone hurt? Was someone hurt? And Hastings just kind of, he's noting that it felt really strange. He felt uncomfortable. And then Nick is so upset. She's really distraught. She's saying things like, should have been her. Um, And then she goes, I have nothing to live for now, which they note was a little strange. Um, That's that's a little strange. For mm -hmm. a brief moment, I was like, you said Maggie was really like, really like bland or boring. I can't remember what the actual word used. Um, Yeah. But I was like, Nick, Nick after in order because she was ruining her board, her party. Was <laughs> she was <boring>. that boring. <laughs> Just sucking all the life out of the room. What a way to go. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> so then the doctor and Poro discuss and they kind of suggest that Nick should go to stay in a nursing home. And they're saying because they're like, oh, you're so distraught, like you shouldn't stay by yourself. But in reality, they're both thinking um, she'll be safer at a nursing home with someone to like guard her and watch her 24 seven so that no one can like try and like clearly that someone's trying to kill her. These, hmm. these attempted murders are getting out of hand. Um, then all of a sudden Nick, uh, sorry, all of a sudden Captain Challenger comes into the room and he's heard that Nick is dead and he's so upset and he's going like, she can't be dead. She can't be dead. Uh, and then he sees her lying on the couch, like Basically, Poirot steps aside so that he can see her. And Wait, he heard like, that Nick so is happy. dead? He had heard, he says he had heard that Nick was dead. That's very suspicious because Challenger wasn't at the party, but he would have ident- he would have been able to recognize the Scarlet Shawl. And if yeah. he had been the one that killed her, he would have been like, oh, yeah, like, cool, I killed Nick. Like, I've done, I've done, like, my, what my goal is, which I don't have a motive for yet, but we'll, yeah. we'll get to that. And then... We've He's like, that time. oh no, I heard Nick was dead. I heard Nick was dead. And then it's actually Maggie. But everybody at the party already knew that Maggie 
like it was Maggie. So who could have yeah. told him that it was Nick? Yeah. Very suspicious. Good question. So that night, Poirot and Hastings go back to the hotel and Poirot is so upset with himself. He just feels like he's failed. His whole idea, like at the at the dance the night before, he had showed his hand. He, he kind of says to Poirot, uh, to Hastings, I showed my hand to the murderer and I thought the murderer would be so scared they wouldn't attempt anything while I was around. But clearly they're like they're crazy or they're like they're they don't care. They don't know how big a deal he is. If only I'd been a bigger deal in England. People would have been too afraid to (laughs) kill anyone around me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So then they discuss possible motives. And so they kind of go like, it's either gain, like who gets, who gains from her death. So that would be the will, would be Charles Vise, the cousin, and Freddie. Then it could be hate love. So is it possible that um, Challenger, like, was so in love with her and didn't want anyone else to have her and so wanted to kill her? Could it be jealousy for any reason? Is anyone jealous of something she has and wants it? And then it could be fear. Does it's, um Was Nick blackmailing someone or did, she, did Nick know something that someone else didn't want her to know and was scared that they would get caught and so tried to kill mm. her? There are tons of motives and like tons of people who have them and I'm having a hard time parsing which one's which or which one yeah. like is most likely to have done it. I feel like I need more information. Yes. Well, here, I'm going to, so I'll give you just something to look at. He creates a list of suspects. And so those are Ellen, the maid, her husband, who is the gardener of the house. Um, they, their child lives in the house as well. So Ellen, husband, child. And then the two neighbors, Mr. Croft and Mrs. Croft, the Australians. And then the three friends, Mrs. Rice, Mrs. like Mrs. Freddie Rice, Mr. Jim Lazarus, and Commander Challenger. Um, the lawyer cousin, Mr. Charles Vise. And then he kind of leaves this like um cat like this category unknown, like a suspect unknown character. And it could have been any of the other dozen people that she invited to the after party, but we'd know that it's not because we haven't talked to them at all and they're not going to be interesting. Exactly. So it's these, he calls them suspects A to J, with J being the unknown suspect. And then Hastings falls asleep in his chair while Poirot just kind of sits there and continues to think. Are they, so at this point, they're like back at Poirot's or are they still at the, at the house? They're at the, they're both at the hotel that they were staying at. Okay, they're back at the back at the hotel, and being really sad about not being big enough of a deal. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so Hastings has fallen asleep, and then he wakes up, and he can kind of see the change in Poirot. Like Poirot has an idea; he kind of can see the glint in his eye. And Poirot asks him three questions: Why has Nick been sleeping badly lately? Why did she buy a black evening dress? She and and says she never wears black. And why did she say last night, I have nothing to live for now? She was in love with her cousin. <laughs> so Paro, Paro kind of has this, maybe, I don't know if he has an idea of why yet, but he's kind of saying, I think this is what's important. And then he also says she was so happy at dinner, like she was all excited. And then she left to take that phone call, which she was gone for around 20 minutes. After that, like when, when we found her later, she's going, it doesn't matter now. I have nothing to live for. And we we don't know who the phone calls from, right? No. Oh, we can't we can't subpoena the phone company in order to get the records because it's the thirties. Exactly. We can't do anything. Nothing is in like with DNA. What is that? <laughs> do they have fingerprints at that point? Yes, they do. 
So Hastings goes to kind of wash up and have breakfast, you know, as he's slept in a chair all night, he's like, uh, freshen up. And he reads in the paper while he's sitting at breakfast that the Michael Sutton airman guy has um, been killed or he's been found or pronounced dead, I guess. They haven't been able to recover the plane. Um, while he's eating, Freddie meets him in the dining hall and they both go up to see Poirot together. She had wanted to talk to him and Hastings was like, yeah, I'll come with you. I'll show you up. And she's come to tell Poirot. She's like, now she kind of feels like this is more serious. And so she admits that she had been lying before about her whereabouts. And she says that her and Mr. Lazarus had actually been staying together um, in a like hotel close to the area. So when she had said she was in that farther off place, that was a lie. Um, they had been there since like Wednesday they, or Tuesday or something. They'd been there earlier in the week. See, this makes me believe that Freddie probably isn't the murderer because she's being forthcoming with this. But the fact that she's now like she's now implicating Lazarus in her in her being around. I'm very, very suspicious of Lazarus. He knows about cars. He knows about brakes. He tried to play off like, oh, the brake thing is nothing like nothing could have happened, even though. Later on, the mechanic tells us like the brakes were definitely tampered with. He wants uh-huh. that painting for his art collection. He uh-huh. he and Freddie are in love or not in love or something. And yeah, so the case I'm, is kind of building up a little bit against yeah. him. Yeah, my my suspect numero uno right now is definitely Mister Mister Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Freddie kind of says that she, her and Lazarus have been friends for about six months and then she leaves. I'm sure there was other stuff going on, but it wasn't important. So I didn't write it down. (laughs) (laughs) And then suddenly George Challenger bursts into the room and he is super upset that he is not being allowed to see Nick. So this is like, she's staying in the nursing home now. And he kind of says his uncle is a nerve specialist, like his uncle's a doctor. And so he knows that it's a lie that friends shouldn't, aren't allowed to see Nick like he's like something's going on here and I think Poirot you have something to do with it um and I don't think Poirot admits anything I think he kind of just goes up doctor's orders like what do you want me to do (laughs) so then he leaves or Challenger leaves and Poirot and Hastings go to the nursing home to see Nick because they're allowed they're allowed in like uh, the Nick um the nurse has their descriptions she can admit them Oh, this is back in the days where like they didn't have pictures of the people, and so they're just like, "Oh yeah, look for a, like a bald guy with a big mustache." Like, exactly. Let, let him in, and like if somebody else shows up who happens to be bald and has a big mustache, like uh, they're let, just let into. Yeah, yeah, just ridiculous. So um, Nick is gonna tell them, like she's gonna give them the answer to those three questions I just asked. Do you want to take a guess about what she's gonna tell them? Okay, so Nick is gonna tell them why she's been sleeping badly why she bought the black dress and why she has nothing to look yeah. for and probably who the call was with. Hmm. Yeah. And um, Poirot was also said to Hastings earlier. He's like, as I was eating breakfast, the answer slapped me in the face. So Poirot knows now too. He just wants Nick to say it. Uh, if Poirot knows, then like that means that I should have enough information to know, but I feel like yeah. I don't. I mean, <laughs> if I were Nick, I would have been sleeping badly because like, because somebody's obviously trying to kill me, <laughs> but uh-huh. I don't think that's what it is. The black dress thing is very suspicious. The only time that I think about wearing like black is at funerals. Like, but mm-hmm. like, was she planning on going to somebody's funeral? I don't know. Probably not. That seems kind of silly. And mm-hmm. why does she have nothing to live for? Mm-hmm. That I don't even have a, a, a any sort of clue. Other than we don't know who Nick 
is in love with and wants to marry yet, right? I'm guessing that's uh-huh. who is on the phone. Hmm. And who 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 has recently died? I mean Maggie, and, and? also Michael Sutton, the uh-huh. the airman, the airman boy. Yes. Amelia Earhart version like zero point one. Yeah. So they go. They kind of ask her. He asks her point blank, "Why'd you say you have nothing to live for?" And she admits. What Poirot had already suspected that she was engaged to Michael Sutton in a secret engagement since the winter. Secret engagement to Michael Sutton. That yep. mix. Yep. So then she kind of tells them all about it. Um, it had been a secret because Michael's uncle was um, super rich but hated women. That's also a common theme. Women hating men. Um, I, I mean, like, it's it's the 30s. Like, even, like, by today's standards, like, every man hated women. <laughs> but it's more, it's more than that. It's like, it's like men who, basically they say it's like these men who have got, who were, like, slighted by women earlier in their youth. And now, like, won't even let women into the house. Like, they hate them. They hate their presence so much. Ah, uh, the, the, like, old-timey incels. Yes. Yes, exactly. So. Ah, <laughs> uh, women are the cause of all of my problems. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So he, um, Michael Seton had this uncle who was like this. And so basically, if the uncle had found out that he had gotten engaged to a woman, no <laughs> less, uh, he would have stopped sponsoring him. So the his air, like his, um, his airplane journey around the world was being sponsored by his uncle. And so he kind of needed that to be finished before, before he kind of announced his engagement. So um, wait, and then, hold on. Would would yeah. the uncle have been okay with him having like? like a gay engagement like would that would that have been just chill with him like oh you you can get engaged just get engaged to a man yo they don't even talk about that i don't know (laughs) we can make our own assumptions why don't we say yes yeah i'm his his uncle was really into like gay pride at the time but like he had to do it quietly yeah so his uncle is like super anti-women so we don't like him for that reason but he's super pro Pro LGBTQ plus. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so love him for that. Yeah, that way I can feel mixed about his uncle, even when we find out that he's the murderer. Okay, sounds good. Well, to so we we do kind of know already, but I'll talk about it more. The uncle's dead. Ah. So. Alas. Yeah, he won't be the murderer. Don't worry about him. Um, but yeah, so he kind of had told Freddie, or he had told Nick that Nick couldn't tell anyone about the engagement, even Freddie. So Nick had kept it like super on the down low. Um, and then Poirot asks about the, her will, the one that she had written six months ago before she had appendicitis. And she said, she thinks it's somewhere kicking around the house. It's kind of like her words. She's not sure where, but it's probably somewhere. (laughs) (sighs) So Poirot is ecstatic about all this. Not that people are dead, but just that he kind of can see a little bit more about the motive. And he's kind of saying that, that that the uncle had died the week before, or like two weeks before, and the uncle was a millionaire. He was super rich, probably one of the richest men in, in, men in England. And he had kind of said, undoubtedly, he had left money to his nephew, Michael. Even if it wasn't all his money, he probably left a large sum. And so Michael had gone missing last Tuesday and the attack on Nick's life had started on Wednesday. So he's kind of saying, did Michael leave Nick money and did someone know about it and was trying to like get it? If, you know, the uncle dies, Michael dies, Nick dies, someone gets money. 
very suspicious. I never would have seen this coming. I, I, I was predicting everybody that we'd already met and none of the none of the people that are related to Michael Sutton, who I thought they were just talking about as like a politically interesting thing going on. So I had also, I thought that, I'll say that now. Um, I had thought that and so I didn't even write about Michael Sutton when I first read it. And then when I got to the end, I had to come back. Or like when Michael Sutton kept coming up in the story, I had to go back and be like, oh, add this in. This is important. I didn't know. <laughs> so Michael probably had money set aside for Nick. That Yeah, we think. And so we're, we're going back to the house. Ready if Nick were to die. Yeah. So they have to find they have to find Nick's will to prove that, and then they have to find um, if there if there was a will written by Michael. They go back to End House, and Poirot kind of narrows down his list of suspects. So exactly what you're saying, he's saying if the will that Nick talks about is true, then the only people who have motive are Freddie Rice and Charles Vise because they're the beneficiaries of the will. Or they could pull they could pull like a. Oh, we don't know where the will is, but oh, look, I found it. And it leaves all of the money to me. Yeah, something like that. So they got to find the will is basically what they're getting at. So they go, as they're getting, like, they're coming up to End House, they run into the gardener and um, and his son. The son's 10 years old. And they kind of just describe the son as like this ghoulish 10-year-old boy who talk what he starts talking about is like yeah did you know the dead girl was killed right here and like did you know that i my i my dad has killed pigs before and i've seen him do it <laughs> the husband's like yeah on a farm for dinner <laughs> like quieting so, down his son i feel like on on some level like i've met 10 year olds and i've been a 10 year old boy and like that's <laughs> totally in character for like literally any 10 year old boy but at the same time I'm getting some Jeffrey Dahmer vibes, like, oh man, it's so cool. I love watching my dad slaughter pigs, like. Right? Yeah. So you're kind of in this mixed feeling, mixed emotion of like, yeah, ten year olds are like that, but also, is it too much? I don't know. Is it too much? No. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, is you know how like all people like ten year old boys now are just like super into dinosaurs and like fidget spinners. Like they didn't have dinosaurs and fidget spinners, so we just had to get yeah. really into slaughtering pigs. Exactly. Yeah. They, they, this was this was the the entertainment of the day. <laughs> I mean, like people used to love going to like executions and stuff, so it's not True. that out of the ordinary. It's not even. Yeah, it's not even kids. Everyone's interested. Yeah. Them, apparently. So they kind of get away from him quickly. Hastings is like, ooh, gross, kids. <laughs> and so they, they quickly get into the house and they start questioning the housemaid, Ellen, of the events from the night before. And they're kind of questioning why she had thought someone had been hurt when Hastings had come inside the house because Hastings is, had told Poirot about that. And she kind of, basically her answer is like non-committal, and she says it's because the house is evil. <laughs> It's because the house is haunted. There's an evil ghost that lives in the walls. It's a, it's a more, yeah, exactly. It's a more roundabout way, but you kind of, like, it feels like she's holding something back. Like, she had an actual opinion, but wouldn't tell them what it is. Um, and she also hadn't gone out to see the fireworks the night before, which is very strange, because in past years she has. Um, Plus, like, you get to, it's the old-timey times. You only get to see fireworks, like, once every five years or some something like that. Like, why would you miss them? <laughs> And you've, yeah. you've seen lights that weren't like candles like four times. And you're like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this light is so bright and in the sky. It's like a sun. It's, a just, 
It's a little weird. And like um, Nick had given her permission to go out to see the fireworks, but she still hadn't. So it's just part of kind of saying it really feels like she knows something and she's not she's not telling us. Um, and then Poirot kind of just as a matter of form asks if there are any secret chambers or secret um, cubbies in the house because it's an old house. And she says, so she had been working there since she was a young girl when the grandfather had owned the house. And she remembers as a girl being told by the cook that there was a secret cubby somewhere in either like the drawing room or the dining room or something like that. But she can't remember where or which room or anything about it or how big it was. That's useful. Yeah. Hmm. So then they start to go through the papers in the library, the desk in the library, and it's just a complete mess. And Poirot can't handle a mess. So he he organizes everything <laughs> for her, which is very kind of him. But also, like, how would you feel if you just came back and, like, somebody had organized everything in your house? Oh, it'd be weird AF, but he does it anyways. He doesn't care. Mm. Um, there was one, basically, not. there's nothing important in that desk or nothing of interest except for one letter from Freddie that says... You are wise not to touch that stuff. Don't ever start, darling. It's too damned hard to give up. I'm writing the boyfriend to hurry up the supply. Freddy. Very strange. Very suspicious. Don't touch that stuff. It's like the 30s. Everybody was like really into cocaine back then. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So Poirot's kind of saying he thinks he thinks that she was doing... He had th- thought since he first met her that she did drugs. And this is kind of what he thinks it is. That is cocaine. Feel, I feel very in tune with Poirot. He thinks all the same things <laughs> as I do. <laughs> Good. That's what you want. So then they go up to her room to look around, and Poirot kind of like first goes, her, there's nothing in the desk, but he goes to her underwear drawer, and he finds a bundle of letters tied up with a ribbon. Nah, he and was Hastings, nasty. Well, Hastings is so mad. He's like, you can't touch that. Like, it's, it's a woman's. Like, you can't blah, 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 blah. And Poirot's like, nah, people wear bikinis now. It's cool. Like, this doesn't matter. <laughs> I saw her ankles. This is fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he starts to read the letters. And they the dates all go all the way back to New Year's and go, go from New Year's to, like, late April. And the last letter was undated. And what the last letter said was, it, these are letters from Michael Sutton to to his to Nick, so like to his fiance. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, the last one says, "By the way, somebody said I ought to make a will, so I have on a half sheet of notepaper and sent it to Old Whitfield. I remembered your name was really Magdala, which was clever of me." <laughs> so we now know that Michael Sutton's will is in somewhere in Whitfield, which is convenient that he didn't that he sent it somewhere rather than like holding on to it. On top uh, he, of... so old Whitfield, I think, is a person. Oh, never mind. <laughs> that makes more sense than just saying, like, I sent it to this city. <laughs> <laughs> I sent your will to New York. Have fun finding it. Good luck. <laughs> so then, um, after reading those letters, Para kind of says, anyone could have read those letters. Like, her house, like, we've proven that you can get into the room. Um, they're just in her underwear drawer. Like, everyone would know to look there. She doesn't lock anything up. Um, so anyone could have known about the will. Um, and he kind of suspects Ellen. He's like, the maid is definitely reading these letters. Uh, and she's like looking through everything. So when they when they go downstairs as they're leaving, he kind of like purposely goes like, oh, what do you think of the engagement between Michael and, and Nick? And Hastings kind of notes that she seems genuinely surprised. But he's they're like, is she did she just know that was coming and knew to fake it, or is she did she actually not read the letters? I mean, Hastings has already proven that he's not a very good judge of character 
basically ever and that we have to wait for Poirot's opinion on the subject. I, I think Poirot kind of agrees with him. So that... Okay, so the maid seems genuinely surprised. Mm -hmm. So they go straight back to the nursing home because they haven't found the will in the house and so they want to like ask Nick more about it. And he asks her if she put it in like a secret panel because Ellen had been talking about that secret cubby. And she kind of goes like the or it says she had no idea there was a secret panel in the house and she's sure that her grandfather would have told her about it if there was. So she's confused, like, like Ellen must be thinking of something else, like another house. Mm. And then she, she says with regards to the will that when she had written it, it actually had been Mr. Croft that had been the one suggesting it to her um, when she was going in to get her appendix out. And he, she says he had been very helpful and he, he had suggested all these things for her to write the will. Wait, Mr. Croft? The neighbor, the Australian neighbor, Mr. Croft. Oh, oh sorry. I, I kept just writing Aussie. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So at that moment, she kind of remembers that they had actually mailed the will to Charles, the, the cousin. And she writes out a lever, letter that gives them permission to see the will so that they can go see Charles and get him to read it to, to them. So they right away go to see Charles and he is super confused. He says that he never received a will from Nick, like nothing came into his possession. And so if she sent it, like it, it didn't arrive to him. Interesting. So it could have been intercepted. Maybe it's the postman. Something. Yes. There's like some little confusion there. So then they go to see Mr. Croft, the Aussie guy, and ask him about it. And he says that when he had asked Nick if she had made a will, he had been joking, like kind of like a, um, I don't know how you joke about that, but that's what he says. And he says that Ellen and the husband, like the two, the maid and the gardener had witnessed it and that Mr. Croft had actually been the one to put it in the mailbox that, that he's like, no, I'm positive. I put it in the mailbox. So like mm. it definitely got sent or it like, definitely got to the box at the end of the lane. But anybody probably could have taken it out of a mailbox, right? I think so. You're left that impression, but they don't say that specifically. Mm. Very, very suspicious all around. I must say there, there are so many people who have access to everything. <laughs> Yes, I know. It, it kind of like, cut, you can't cut anyone out. That's how it in, in the previous episodes of this that I listened to, is like, there's a, like one entrance and ent exit to this place where the person was murdered. Like, let's figure it <laughs> out. Like, we saw there's a boy stationed sitting there watching that door the whole time. Like, <laughs> there are three people who could have done it. And this is like, basically anyone from the entire town or any basically anywhere in England could have just walked in, taken out all of the letters and left. Yeah, so good luck figuring it out. Poirot's definitely feeling that, that kind of like, what is going on? So they go straight back to the hotel, and this is after visiting Mr. Croft and Mrs. Croft, and the chief constable of the town is waiting for them. And so Poirot takes him fully into his confidence and tells him everything that he's thinking. And in return, the chief constable shows Poirot a scrap of paper that his officers had found on the end house property um, when they were searching it after Maggie's murder. And so the paper said, it was kind of cut off at the beginning and in parts of the middle and at the end, but it said something, 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 must have money at once, if not you, and then it's cut off. And then it said, what will happen? I'm warning you. So must have money at once, if you, what will happen? I'm warning you. Must have money at once, if not you, blank, what will happen? I'm warning you. Mm -hmm. I feel like this, who, who... We don't know like who it's to or who it's from. It was just found in a, a scrap of paper in end house. Yeah, uh, unlike the property, like or, in the grounds. Yeah, in the grounds on the property. Yeah. Also, like, how how do you cut off like just 
I don't, I, I don't think I've ever had a piece of paper in my entire life that, like, I just lost half of a piece of paper. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know what to tell you, but it, it makes, makes for the story more interesting better. murder mystery, yeah. Exactly. It's just the way it has to be. <laughs> okay. So Parl keeps the note, the, the police chief lets him keep mm-hmm. it, lets him keep it. And it reminds Hastings, kind of says it reminds him of Mrs. Rice, like Freddie's handwriting. And Poirot agrees that it looks similar, but he doesn't think it's hers. Like it's similar, but not the same. Interesting. Uh, around that time, Challenger kind of pops into the room to see th- how he's like asking how things are going with the with the murder and like solving it. And Poirot, he kind of goes like, well, at least you know it's not me because I have an alibi. And Poirot goes... Oh, well, I mean, you were coming from such and such place to get to End House, and we all know that should have taken you an hour as it had in the past. Yet, for some reason, it took you an hour and a half. So, no, you don't have an alibi. Also very suspicious to be like, hey, what are you guys doing with the investigation? I'm very interested separately. Uh, Totally unrelated, but I totally have an alibi. Like, just going to throw that out there. No, like, not even, don't even, like, don't even question me because I have an alibi. (laughs) Don't worry about it. But, of course, Poirot has already worried about it, so don't worry. So he, he kind of goes with that. And then Poirot goes into... Challenger, like, asks if he can come with them. They're going to go into town to get flowers. And so he comes with them to the flower shop, and Poirot orders flowers to be sent to Nick. Um, and then he writes, like, a note that says, with with the compliments of Hercule Poirot. Because he's such a gentleman. Yes, because he's such a gentleman. Everyone's been sending her flowers, so he's just kind of joining because no one can go visit her. Ah. So the inquest is held the next day, the next morning, and they end up meeting the parents of the dead girl, Maggie. Um, And then after that, they go to London to meet with Michael Sutton's lawyer. So that's the Mr. Whitfield that he said he had sent the will to. Old Mr. Whitfield. Yeah, old Whitfield. And so the lawyer, Whitfield, confirms that the bulk of the millionaire uncle's fortune, who was the second richest man in all of England, not just one of the richest, just to be clear, um, the bulk of the fortune had gone to Michael. This is like 80% of Virgin Galactic we're talking about. <laughs> Woo, so much money. <laughs> so Michael's, and then he also says that Michael's will was perfectly legal. So if Miss, what he's basically saying is that all this money was left to Michael and then Michael died, which was left to Miss Buckley. So if Miss Buckley had died, it would go to whoever was stated in her will, whoever were her beneficiaries. Like that was legal. This is like one of those times where you hear like, oh, only eight, only eight people have to die for me to get like to become king of England. Like I'm that I'm that close. Like it feels like, oh, only four people have to like be murdered in order for me to become the like the second wealthiest man in England. Just ridiculous. Yeah. So they're kind of saying that with death duties, this it won't be as much money, but still a lot of money. What are death duties? Um, You basically have to pay money to the government when someone dies like taxes but death taxes is that like a percentage of their estate or basically yeah yeah and it's it's different depending on how much money you have so a really rich person would it would be a bigger percentage of their money mm. even after you die the government's still trying to tax your pants off yep silly government trying to provide social services and fix our roads <laughs> who needs them <laughs> how dare they i don't want school to be paid for health care so okay so the the uncle Mr. Sutton, or the uncle of Mr. Sutton, of Michael Sutton, passed away, like, two weeks ago. Yeah. And then so did Michael Sutton, and somebody's trying to kill Nick. Yeah. And the person who benefits from Nick 
passing away would be Freddie. Freddie would get all of the money. Yeah. Based on what she described was in her will. But there's no will. But we don't have the will yet. But we're, we're I'm I'm assuming we're gonna find it eventually. But yeah. It seemed, but it also seems like they didn't start trying to kill Nick until after Michael Sutton had already like had a disappearance. And Sutton's disappearance seems to have happened after the uncle. So maybe they're just going down the line and eventually it'll reach them. And who knows, maybe Freddy's the next target. True. We don't know. What's Nick's I want to see Freddy's will. Got it. <laughs> well, I don't know anything about it yet. We'll see if it comes up. I suspect it doesn't. <laughs> so after meeting with the lawyer, they go to meet with Inspector Jap. So Inspector Jap is this, he's like a, a common character in Agatha Christie books. He's a um, Scotland Yard detective. Mm-hmm. And so often he'll be solving a mystery and he'll just like show up at Poro's door and get his help, basically. Oh, are we having a side quest? Kind of. <laughs> so they, they're, they're visiting Inspector Jap, but it's actually Hercule Poirot is called on Jap this time for help. So they have dinner with him and um, he's gotten them some info. So Poirot has kind of like asked him to do some investigations that otherwise Poirot couldn't get the info for. Oh, because he's not actually like a, a detective anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even even when he was, he was only a private investigator. So he wasn't with the police force. Oh, interesting. It's interesting to me that the police are like willing to just give Poirot like, oh, here, have this note that's really interesting evidence about the person who was murdered. Like, here, have it. So he he was, uh, Poirot's history is he was in the Belgian police force. Like, that was what he did for his whole life. And then when he retired from that, he moved to England and basically just, like, started falling into all these mysteries and then proved how, like, good he was at solving mysteries, gained all this fame, and has now retired from being a private investigator. So, like, the police officers in England, at least, will are, like, in a niche enough sort of group that they would know who, how big a deal he is. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of England does know who he is. It just might be the older generation. And, like, the police force know who he was. Like, um, the, the only reason the lawyer told them that information about the will is because someone, like, really, really high up in Scotland Yard had sent him in a letter giving, like, telling him that Paro was coming and needed this information. Wow. Imagine, like... Imagine being that that big a deal, honestly, in, in real life now where like you just go places and lawyers are forced to give you privileged information. Yeah, it would be nice. <laughs> I, I guess not really for me. What, what do I need to know? Yeah, I was going to say like, I, it would be like cool, but also very useless. Yeah, I don't need to know anything. So Jop has found out information for him and that being first, so Lazarus was the son of like, I, I mentioned this kind of, but he was the son of an art dealer in London, kind of a famous art dealer. And Poirot wants to know, how are they doing? Like, is the business doing well? And so Jap has found out that they are, a, they have a really good reputation of being good art dealers. But in the last year, they've come in a bad way financially. So they are kind of like in need of money. And it's for no reason other than like the market of what people want has kind of shifted. So people want modern things now. They don't want old things. And they're all, as art dealers, they sold antiques as well. People want modern things. So not like that one portrait of her like grandfather or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so even even though we now know like uh, people don't want the like the old things they're selling, he's still trying to pick up like, oh man, that old picture of a dead guy. Like I want that. <laughs> So that, well, that, that comes up. So Poirot's, that, um, that man that he had asked to go, that he had asked Nick to let into the house, um, he heard back from the man and the man had said that the painting of the grandfather, he would only value it at 20 pounds. Wow. 
rough. So why they're questioning why was Lazarus offering her 50 pounds? Wait, how, how many pounds was he offering? He was offering her 50 pounds and the um, the guy Poirot had had in to see the painting had said it was only valued at 20 pounds. Is this one of those cases where like 20 pounds is actually way more money than I feel like it is? Because 20 quid is like is like a couple burgers and a beer or something. Yeah, no, 20 pounds isn't that much. Um, and with inflation, it would be about um, 1,200 pounds today. Wow, that's pretty heavy. So he had offered her 50 and she, uh, she, but it would actually be valued at 20 is what he's saying. Um, so the other thing that Jop tells them is that Commander Challenger is, his uncle is definitely a doctor. Uh, as he kind of said before, he's a nerve specialist, but he mostly kind of attracts women. Like he was saying, like women flock to him, but I kind of think he's a quack is what um, the inspector says. Interesting. Yeah. So then they, they go back, they leave London, they go back to the hotel in St. Lou. And the next morning, Poirot calls the nursing home to like check up on Nick. And he immediately, like his face becomes grave. Nick has been taken dangerously ill from cocaine poisoning. <gasps> so she did touch the stuff and maybe got a little too snort happy after the, like try, trying to make the pain go away, I guess. Well, we're about to, we're about to find out. So they go, they go to the nursing home and find out that um, she'd eaten, like she had been sent a box of chocolates and they had been inserted, like injected with cocaine. Oh, so she, she was not doing the cocaine inhalation herself. And it was Lazarus who told her, she had a, a note from Lazarus, like don't touch the stuff, right? It was from Freddie. The note was from Freddie. Oh, the note was from Freddie. Yeah, so Nick had, she, the doctors kind of said it was an amateur job, like it was like the chocolates were kind of just cut in half and the cocaine mixed in, um, and that Freddie, or sorry, Nick had only eaten one of them, and that three, total of three of the chocolates had contained cocaine. Um, so luckily she'd only eaten one, because three would have been a fatal dose. Why, who, so when they are, a fatal dose of, who puts one third of a fatal dose into each chocolate? Because like, I feel like we're going to stop eating a they're saying it's amateurish. They might not oh, that's know. Good point. Good point. That makes sense then. They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. So when they're allowed to see her, because she was still recovering at that point, um, pa- Poirot is super apologetic, but he also chastises her because he had told her when he had seen her the day before that she wasn't to eat anything that was sent to her. Like flowers were okay, but like the fruit or whatever was sent to her, she wasn't to touch it. You're, you can eat all the flowers you want. Just no, no chocolate. <laughs> you can look at all the flowers you want. <laughs> Um, but she is, she gets super defensive and she's like, well, I thought it was all right because like the, there was a note from you in the box, like you sent them to me. And then she, she shows them the card and it's, has written on it the same thing that he had written on it at the flower shop. Um, like whatever it was like graciously from Poirot or with whatever he says. Challenger went with them to the flower shop, right? Yes. Very suspicious. I, Challenger and Lazarus both make me very, very suspicious, more than anyone else. Most of the other people mm-hmm. I'm less suspicious about, but those guys, mm-hmm. like, Challenger keeps just doing weird stuff, and, like, I really want to come with you while you go get flowers for her, like... Mm-hmm. Mm. So they... So now they have to go figure out where these chocolates came from. So they go to question the orderly who was on duty the night before and who would have received the chocolates. And he remembers when they tell him like box chocolates around 6 p.m. He's like, oh, yes, I remember it was a thin faced gentleman in a really nice car. And he had left the um, he had taken the box and left it on the counter and had been sitting in like that male male area for about 20 minutes before the nurse had come to bring it up to Nick. Um, so 
they're thinking it's either Charles Vise or Lazarus. And when they kind of mention the name, the because Charles Vise, like the lawyer, lives in the area, the orderly's like, oh no, it wasn't him. Like I would recognize him. So they're yeah, thinking so, Lazarus. So Lazarus is is the Michael Borello of people and has the nice car and is buying the chocolate, <laughs> I see. Yes. So then they speak with the nurse who had brought up the box of chocolates. And she's, she actually says there were two boxes of chocolates, one that had arrived via car and another one that had been sent in the mail. And then neither the, that nurse nor Nick can remember which one was the one that had come from Poro and had the cocaine in it. <laughs> that's, that's so such a coincidence that really complicates the story even further. I love it. Yeah. And not only that, but the box of chocolates that came by mail has had had no name on it. So they don't know who it's from. Wait, so they, they got the two boxes of chocolates mixed up. One of them came by mail. One of them came by car. They're both like one of them had the note from Poirot. The other one had no note. The one with the note from Poirot is the one that was poisoned with cocaine. Yeah, correct. And the reason they don't know which one is which is because they're the they're identical boxes of chocolates from the same store. Wild. That's yeah. absolutely bonkers. Uh, well, it's about to get a lot more bonkers. Are you okay. ready? I, I want to make a couple of predictions before I hear how much more bonkers it can get. Because I'm, I'm really okay. excited and very invested in this story right now. Okay, go for it. I think that, the, that both boxes of chocolates were sent by the same person. Okay. Because I don't like coincidences. Coincidences. Oh. And they were sent different ways in order to sort of confuse the situation. Because if the one that came with the letter, like, who's going to send boxes of chocolates without a letter? It, just, it seems very odd, because yeah. especially for, like, a grieving person. So I'm thinking that they're both sent by the same person, and we know that Lazarus bought a box of chocolates. So he is my current top suspect. Suspect numero okay. A. As, we we as don't know that he said. bought it. We just know that he delivered it. Pardon me? We don't know that he bought it. We just know that he delivered it. I thought that they talked to the person at the chocolate shop. No, no, no. So they they visit the orderly. The orderly would be like a person on duty at the ho- at the nursing. Oh, sorry. Okay, they visited the orderly to ask who gave them the chocolates, and it was a man yeah. in a nice car. But there was also one that came by mail. Yeah. So Lazarus dropped off a box of chocolates himself. Yeah. Which then maybe he doesn't. He thought maybe he could go see her, and he doesn't need a card because he thought he was going to go in. Hmm. Very suspicious. Um, go on. I want to hear the bonkers things. So obviously they're going to question Lazarus right away. So that's what they do first. And he says that, yeah, he had delivered the chocolates, but he they weren't from him. Freddie had bought them and asked him to bring them to Nick. And so he had. And so then they're like, okay, well, now we have to question Freddie. And so they see her and she says, yeah, she had bought chocolates, but that's only because she'd gotten a phone call from Nick um, asking her to buy the chocolates for her. And so Poirot questions. He was like, are you sure it was Nick? And she's like, oh, well, it, she said it was Nick. And he's like, yeah, but did the voice sound like Nick? And she kind of goes, well, no. And so he's like, so if, she had, if the voice hadn't said, this is Nick, you wouldn't have thought it was. And she's like, no. That's also, this is like a product of like old timey telephone stuff where like, you know that it sounded like two cans in a string. Like that's what telephone sounded like back in the day. Like who did it sound like? I don't know. It was on the phone. How am I supposed to be able to tell what someone sounds like? <laughs> It's 1930. Yeah. But so it just it just adds all this complication to things. And so <laughs> that evening, Paro meditates to arrange his thoughts and kind of figure out what is going on. And so at five in the morning, Paro Hastings goes to sleep. He's like, I don't need this. I'm going to bed. 
And at five in the morning, he's awakened by Poro. And Poro, again, has that like twinkle in his eye because he's a plan. They're going to pretend that the cocaine had like the cocaine poisoning had killed Nick. And then they're going to see what happens. They're going to kind of trick everybody. And so just I love it. I like I'm starting to like this Hercule Poirot guy. He should become a big deal (laughs) detective or something. (laughs) He's got some pretty good ideas. So then Hastings says that he, when he like fully woke up that morning, he had a fever. And so the rest of the events of that specific day are hazy because he was feverish and a little bit um, hallucinating. He's, he had some of the chocolates. He's, he's like, this looks really tasty. And uh, you know what? Okay, I, we don't know how bad cocaine can be. It's the 30s. <laughs> True, we don't. So it's kind of like given in in bouts of whenever Hastings wake up wakes up. So in the morning... Uh, he wakes up and Poirot comes into the room and says that there's three possible solutions to the chocolate box that he can come up with. Either Freddie did it all. She she put the cocaine in the chocolates. She made up the phone call. She had Lazarus deliver it. So that's solution one. Solution two is that it was actually in the box that was sent by mail. And literally anyone could have sent it by mail. We don't like that kind of opens it up to everybody. And then solution three is that the box of chocolates that Freddie had delivered was there was a 20 minute period where it was sitting in the mail room in the in the nursing home. So someone could have substituted a separate box of chocolates for that one. Interesting. So hmm, I'm trying to trying to parse this like who who could have done it in the mail room? Like, would we know that? Like, do we have access to that information at all yet? No. Okay. No. They kind of just say it's not necessarily its own room. It's just like an area where they put mail to go up to all the patients. Um, and you're not given any information about like how many people come and go. Um, the orderly seems a little, they kind of describe him as a little dumb. So it's possible that he wouldn't have noticed someone <laughs> coming in. But we, yeah, we don't know. It's kind of open to interpretation. If I were Freddie, and mm-hmm. wait, Freddie Freddie's the one who said that it was requested by Nick that she send these chocolates. But it was like, yeah. And she specifically asked for that type of chocolates. Yes. So. We're, I'm now, remember how I said I don't believe in coincidences that like two boxes of identical chocolates just happened to be delivered? Definitely don't believe that now. I don't think it was Freddie that did it. Okay. I Like I, it just seems, she seems too forthright in go like earlier on when she was like, oh, I, I lied before. I was actually hanging out with Lassie over like yeah. in a nearby hotel. Like she, she just doesn't seem that suspicious to me. Uh-huh. Okay. I could see Lazarus calling her on the phone and saying, I'm Nick, and then going, get get these boxes of chocolates. And then he delivers the chocolates with the poison and then also mails yeah. them so that there's a lot of a lot of yeah. stuff. There's a lot of stuff yeah. that could have gone off. Exactly. It's very confusing. So the next time that um, Hastings wakes up, Poirot tells him that he's not he's like everything's going well everyone thinks that nick is dead like he's playing the part really well and hastings gets mad at him because he's like you need to tell you need to tell challenger what's going on like he's in love with nick like you can't let him think that she's dead and Poirot's like uh no i'm not telling anyone like that ruins the whole point of this thing like yeah. you need something to happen uh and hastings like no he's a military guy like he's trustworthy like you can mm-hmm. trust him don't worry about it and you know then he falls back asleep and Poirot's kind of like no we're not doing that yeah, I going with Poro here and probably always and forever. <laughs> so then Hastings wakes up in the evening and he sees Poro has been working on that list of suspects that we talked about earlier. 
And so it's this list of people from A to J, and he's kind of opened it back up to it could be anyone. He has a lot of questions about all of them. Things like, um, what we were talking about before, like why did Lazarus offer 50 pounds for a painting that was only worth 20? Why, um, what's that scrap of paper? Because this is going poorly and he doesn't know how to judge the value of a painting. <laughs> So, but it it doesn't it doesn't seem to be going poorly because he doesn't know how to judge. It seems to be going poorly just because it's like a product of the time period. Mm. So it's, that's confusing. And then um, he's asking about like where was where was Challenger during those thirty minutes that he should have he should have arrived at the house. Like why did it take him so long? Or why did Freddie lie to us in the first place? Um, who's lying about the secret compartment? Like is does is Ellen know what she's talking about? Is she thinking of somewhere somewhere else? Like just so many questions who's lying like where's the will does charles the lawyer actually know where it is and he's just saying that he doesn't know where it is did, did mr croft actually mail it did someone intercept it he's just writing all these questions down yeah that's a lot of questions and so as he's kind of telling he's telling all of this to hastings because hastings um can't he's still sick and suddenly hastings kind of gives a start and like um, like an exclamation because he says he's seen a terrible pale face pressed up against the window of the hotel room. Hastings said he saw a terrible pale face pressed up against the window of the hotel room. Yeah, as Poirot was kind of explaining all of this. And so Poirot goes to the window and whoever it was is gone. Um, and he kind of says, luckily, they didn't take, they weren't talking about the fake death. So whoever was list, trying to listen wouldn't have overheard anything that important. Is nobody suspicious of the fact that, like, Poirot's telling everybody that she's dead, but they're still not letting anyone see, like, her body or anything? Seemingly no. <laughs> nice, I like it. Only Poirot has suspicions. Yeah, he says that they're only going to fake it for 24 hours, and then they'll, like, hopefully whatever happened has happened already. Okay, so they're, they're basically faking it just throughout Hastings' fever dream. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So they go to bed and the next morning Paro gets, he gets several letters and he's kind of hoping that this will be, so one of the letters will be what he's, like something will have happened. Sadly, no, but he did get a letter from Maggie's parents and they kind of just thought that he would, like, they didn't think it was important, but that he'd like to see the telegram, sorry, not the telegram, that he'd like to see the letter that Maggie had sent them upon her arrival at Endhouse. And so the letter just says, um, that she's arrived safely and that Nick seems fine. And she thinks, says that she thinks Tuesday would have done just as well. Um, and then she talks of how um, they had tea with the Australian neighbors and that she's going to put the letter in the post box by the um, gate at the end of the drive. Wait, which letter? The letter that she's writing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to mail this letter to you. <laughs> yeah, basically. I'm, I'm, as I write this, I'm walking to the mailbox. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing this while pressed against the mailbox. Oh, there's someone walking by. Hi. They're <laughs> like reading their life as they're writing the letter. I love it. So then as he's finishing reading that letter, he gets a phone call from the lawyer, Charles Vise. And he's the, Charles says that Miss Buckley's will that was dated February 21st, 20, February 25th has just turned up at his office. Like it's come by mail. So boom. Okay. And then suddenly Poirot at this kind of moment um, gives an exclamation. And he, it seems at this point that he knows the solution to the murder. He knows now. So I ask you, <laughs> Poirot knows. Poirot, Poirot has not known until this point. He has no idea, but now he does. So I'm going to open the floor 
for you to say what you have been thinking until this point. Okay. Oh, obviously we've we've had suspicions, but how are you feeling right now about everybody? Extremely suspicious that and he. Oh, like it didn't even arrive here. Like because that's what uh, Charles said. He said that like the the will never arrived. He never like got it. It wasn't it wasn't there. It wasn't at the office. And then yeah. all of a sudden, after she dies, it turns up there. But he doesn't say like anybody else found it or like somebody delivered it to him. Like he just had it. And we know from what Nick said that she was planning on leaving him the house. But mm-hmm. we like Charles doesn't know that Nick told them what was in the will, right? Mm-hmm. Which is very suspicious because that means he could probably like if he had the real will, he and he thinks that Nick is dead, he could forge a new one now with no one else theoretically knowing what was on the will, except for maybe the Australian or whoever helped her. It was the Australian guy, right? Yeah, the Australian neighbor, Mr. Pearl. Was helping her write the will. But mm-hmm. who are people going to believe? Like the Australian neighbor living with her, like living in her like little townhouse thing or her, like her lawyer slash cousin. So yeah. I feel like he thinks he, like the fact that it's turning up now at this point in time makes me very suspicious of Charles buys and he and anyone could have known about her engagement and he's he was in love with her right we we heard that from somebody we heard that from the Crofts interesting that's the only person we've heard it from I'm taking that as fact because I don't really suspect the Australians for any reason because I don't think that they have any way of like getting to the money through killing Mm-hmm. Like, why would she, in what universe would she leave all of her money to, like, the people that were renting from her? I see, yeah. So, knowing all of that, thinking it's got to be the, the lawyer Charles buys, like, I, I... He's the only, you're kind of saying he's the only one with murder and opportunity. He is the one who seems most likely able to get the money, assuming she's killed, and he has a, mm-hmm. some level of, like, he has pretty good motive, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it also makes sense to me that he would want to try and kill Michael Sutton because he's in love with uh, with her. I see. Get him yeah. out of the picture. It's like envy or jealousy. Yeah. So that all sort of fits together nicely. I don't under like I'm trying to figure out why Challenger has been acting so strangely. <laughs> like I don't have a good answer to that at all. Yeah. Although Challenger was in love with Freddie, and Freddie would be the one. <gasps> Hold on. So Challenger was around uh, in love with Nick. So Challenger's in love with Nick, and Charles is in love with Nick, both of them. Yeah. But she was in love with Michael Sutton. Yeah, she was engaged to him. I could almost see... I don't think Challenger has a way to the money mm-hmm. easily. Like It doesn't seem reasonable that she would leave her money to him. He was trying to get married to her, though, is the thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who the murderer is, but my suspicion is... That it's Charles. Okay. Charles is my number one suspicion. I would even go so far as to say that maybe uh, Challenger killed Michael Sutton. Okay. But I I will let let Foro tell us everything that has happened. (laughs) Okay. So here goes. We're in the end end game here. So that night, Poro always likes to be super dramatic with his reveals. Mm -hmm. So what he's done is he's arranged for everyone, all the suspects from A to J, um, from his list to be at end house in the in sat around in the in, including suspect jay who was unknown person they say they say they say sadly jay suspect jay could not be around because <laughs> they are but 
they leave a they leave a seat open for him or her. Brilliant. So they they kind of Poirot kind of has Charles Vise, the lawyer, be the one who's kind of taking charge of the situation because Poirot kind of wants to be able to watch everybody. And so Charles says that he's going to read the will, and it says, "This is the last will and testament of Magdala Buckley. I leave everything of which I die possessed." to Mildred Croft in grateful recognition of the services rendered by her to my father, Philip Buckley. And Wait, everyone to... is dumbfounded. Mildred Croft, the wife of like the Australian woman. I'm dumbfounded. Everyone's dumbfounded. Everyone's kind of just sitting there in shock. Like no one says anything. They're like, uh, okay. Okay. Sure. Now I, now I definitely think that now I'm very suspicious of the Australian. <laughs> Cause he's the, uh, he was the one helping her with the will and mm-hmm. it was, he, he was the one who said like, Oh yeah, I definitely mailed it. <laughs> like I yep. definitely walked over and mailed it. Yeah. Yep. Aha. <laughs> so now hearing that, I don't see how exactly everything pieces together. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm now thinking that crop, probably the murderer but i don't know how he knew about the chocolates situation Mm, unless oh he could have gotten his wife mildred to make the call because she has a feminine voice Mm. that could have passed for nicks which then is he definitely has the opportunity Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't seem plausible that he would think that this will would actually fly yeah especially if he really helped her work on the will if the only thing in the will says that I'm giving everything to Mildred. Yeah. So they kind of, Mildred kind of says at this point, she's kind of going like, oh, that's so sweet of her, yada, yada, yada. And Poro questions Charles because he goes like, well, since, you know, this is a lot of money and you're the only, like, not heir, but like relative, he's like, you could protest or contest this will. And Charles is like, as a lawyer, this is clearly a correct will. Like everything seems above board. So there'd be no reason to contest it. But at the same time, it's like super uncomfortable because this woman is like, you know, kind of feels like it came out of nowhere. Yeah. So then Paro suggests, why don't we do a seance to try to talk to Nick? And like we can see because they're all going like, I wonder what Nick would say. And they're like, oh, we can just talk to her, right? Like, we'll just do it. (laughs) So they turn off the light and they pretend that Hastings is guiding the seance. And so he's kind of pretending to go into a trance. And as he's doing that, suddenly the dining room starts to slowly swing open. And in the doorframe is standing a shadowy figure of Nick Buckley. And so if everyone was dumbfounded before, now they're all freaking out. Because there's this this ghost in the room, supposedly. Until (laughs) Faro turns on the lights and Freddy kind of realizes first that she's real. Like she's not dead. So she is able to kind of look at the Crofts and go like, "Uh uh-huh, that's what I wrote my will. You really want to keep with that? And Mrs. Croft is immediately like, oh, it was a joke. It was a joke. I didn't mean anything by it. And then Inspector Jap comes into the room to arrest Mrs. Croft, a.k.a. also named Millie Merton, who is a forger well-known to the police. What? But, Will, it's not over yet. I don't think that they killed her. I don't think they did it. So Vise asks, like, it was the will of forgery. And Nick says, of course, she'd never have been that dumb. And she tells her her cousin Charles, like, I left the house to you and I left everything else to Freddie. And then suddenly it happens. 
Two gunshots are heard from the window and suddenly Freddy's arm is bleeding and Poirot and Challenger jump to the window and pull a limp body out into the open. And Freddy kneels beside the man and as he dies, she declares, he was my husband. So it was Freddy's husband that had ran away and like, oh, I completely forgot about the fact that Freddy had a husband and that's why she couldn't marry Lazzie. And so... Mm -hmm. The husband. This is, this is person unknown. This is Jay. Person unknown, Mr. Jay. This makes a lot of sense now because he is apparently like sneaking around in the house all the time, I guess. And like. Yeah. Well, they wow. describe him as like he's a drug fiend. And so that little piece of scrap of note that they had found on the property had been him threatening Freddie. And what she says is that he had threatened her all the time that he was either going to shoot her or shoot himself if she didn't give him money and that he had actually been the one that introduced her to cocaine and got her hooked on drugs she had been fighting the habit ever since he had left and she was almost cured like she was basically at the end of her treatment so that all happened and then wow. nick kind of asked Poirot. she's like listen like i i kind of brought you into this mess but can you please for freddie's sake let's just hush it up like we'll limit the scandal i don't want anyone to be bothering her like i don't mind and everyone in the room says that they agree, like the Ellen, the maid, like her husband, Hastings, the Crofts, every, or like Freddie, Lazarus, everyone's like, yeah, we won't say anything, except for Charles Vise and Poirot. Poirot's like, I would never do that. And then he begins to explain. And so he starts with um, asking Jap what Jap had seen earlier in the day. And Jap explains how Poirot had asked him to hide behind the curtains in the drawing room while everyone was in the dining room. And he had seen a young woman come into the room, open a secret panel beside the fireplace and pull out a Mauser pistol. And then he had watched her go into the hallway and slip it into Freddie's coat pocket. He'd seen a young woman do that? Yeah. Do you want to take a guess at who it is? Someone who is not in the dining room. <sighs> okay. There's only one person left. One person left we know. It was Nick Buckley. Who was trying to frame Freddie? Yes. Are you confused? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just dumbfounded. Like, I feel like there have been eight twists in the last five minutes. Like, <laughs> I know, it's insane. <laughs> okay, hold on. So Nick Buckley is trying to frame Freddie for murdering Nick, for, for trying to murder Nick Buckley. Yes, correct. And that is, as of yet unknown to me, <laughs> yeah i'm trying to figure out what she what she i i can explain it okay i think i think i'm gonna need you because i can't even like come up with a, a plausible reason for that at this no, point it's insane. okay so it, basically they take the police are there to like arrest nick and they take her away and then Poirot kind of has everyone sit down he's like i'm sure you all want an explanation and everyone's <laughs> just like, yeah <laughs> please tell us what's going on so he says it had all come to him when he had was after he had read the letter from um, the Maggie to her parents. Maggie had said um, that Nick was fine and that she had said she had think she thinks Tuesday would have done just as well. And so that's when he realized that Nick had already invited Maggie down to end house for Tuesday. And then when Poirot had suggested she come earlier or that she invite someone, she had invited Maggie to come earlier. Mm -hmm. And so it's then that he realized that Nick's real name was Magdala Buckley. 
Maggie's real name was also Magdala Buckley. Maggie was a nickname for Magdala. And so when Michael Seton had written those letters saying that he was leaving all his money to Magdala Buckley, he wasn't talking about Nick. He was talking about Maggie, the woman he was actually engaged to. So to give more <laughs> Like, I know, it's just like, how could anyone think of this? But to give more of an explanation, Nick had known of the engagement. She was the only person that Maggie was telling about the engagement. And so when the uncle had died, and then when she had, when Michael Satin had gone missing, she kind of realized that the will was only addressed to Magdala Buckley and no one knew of the engagement. So no one would knew who Michael Satin was actually engaged to, only Maggie knew. And so she could kill Maggie and get rid of her she could inherit all the money. Holy smokes. That's absolutely bonkers. That, that is, that's a yeah. cool twist ending that I did not see coming in any universe. Right? So Poirot kind of said that he realized at the very beginning, Nick's friends had said that Nick was a big liar and she was lying about the brakes of the car. And he was kind of saying that at Poirot, he was talking of himself, that he just assumed the friends were wrong and that, of course, Nick was right. But when he started looking into the lens of that Nick was a huge liar and everything that Nick said was a lie, it all kind of everything fit into place and all of the clues and everything made sense. I guess you never you never suspect the person who is having all these attempts on their life to be the one no. who did it. <laughs> no. Let me try and clear up some other loose ends. The the picture frame, the the picture that um, Lazarus had offered fifty pounds for. Um, he kind of tells Poro that, yes, he's an art dealer and he is a good art dealer. He says, I knew that that portrait of the grandfather was only worth 20 pounds. He says that he had offered her more because he knew that um, Nick Buckley would turn him down because she'd think that it was too little. And then when she got it appraised separately by someone else, they would tell her it's only worth tw 20 pounds. And so the next time that he offered her a low bid for a painting, she'd just accept it. And then he points to another painting in the room. He's like, that one's worth 5,000 pounds. Wow. So it was totally separate from everything. And then they also point out that um, Captain, Ch or not Captain, Commander Challenger and his uncle, the doctor, were running a dope business. Like they were supplying everyone with cocaine. So that's where, that's why he was kind of like around and a little bit suspicious because he was supplying Freddie with her cocaine and kind of every, all the, all the women that flocked to the doctor. Oh, that's why all the, the women were flocking to the doctor. Wow. Apparently, that's why. Jack thinks he's a quack. And then the, so the Crofts, we know were, were just kind of, that was like a separate side story of they just had like forged the will and sent it in later, uh, but totally separate from the crimes. Um, and there's nothing wrong with Charles, the lawyer cousin. <laughs> the one, the one person I suspected at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, what, what is interesting is um, as you were kind of suspecting people throughout, like what at the very beginning when you were like, I really think that Jim Lazarus is something like him and Freddie are in it together. That's exactly what I thought. I was on the same page with you. Yeah. And then when, when we get like when those chocolates that um, have the same note as um, Poirot had written in the flower shop, I did the same thing where I was like, Commander Challenger was in the flower shop. Like he yeah. I was really like weirded out by Challenger wanting to come to the flower shop and like why would he want to do that like that's so strange yeah and so yeah. like it just all fit together really nicely wait yeah. so okay so the chocolates I'm now it was chocolates so sent Nick by had, the... Nick had called Freddie she had she had been the one to make the call and um 
she was also getting cocaine from Commander Challenger, and she just happened to have it on her in the nursing home. So she had poisoned her own chocolate. She poisoned her own chocolates. Wait, so mm-hmm. why were there two sets of the same chocolates? They don't oh, she... explain that. But you imagine that she ordered them herself. She ordered them herself. Oh, it could have actually been Nick that called her asking for the chocolates then. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So Pora was making that whole deal of saying, like, are you sure it was Nick? Um, and Freddie kind of goes like, well, no, but it was, it was her. I don't think I've ever watched like a murder mystery or like read about a murder mystery and been so unbelievably wrong about everything ever before now. That's crazy, right? So when I, when I was getting down to the end, like at that point where we say Poirot knows, I, at first I was like, it's gotta be Commander Challenger. And then I like wrote down my guess. And then I was like, no, 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 it can't be. Like, it has to be simpler than that. It has to be simpler than that. So I was like, it's gotta be Ellen, the maid and her husband, because they were the ones that witnessed the will. So they could forge it because they could like sign their own signatures again. And then I was like, no, 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 wait. And then because I've read a lot of these books, I was like, it has to be the least suspect like the least successful <laughs> person. And so I was like, what if Nick is faking her own death? According to Dwight from The Office, it, it's uh, it's never the person I most suspect because anybody would suspect them. And it can't be the person that I least suspect because anybody would suspect them too. It's got to be the person yeah. I most medium suspect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's that was true here, but I had no, like, I had no idea why. I just was like, I'm going to, pick the most ridiculous person it can be and go with them. I feel like it's so hard to like to make the guesses when so many people were breaking the law. <laughs> <laughs> like so many people were doing very suspicious things in tandem and yeah. it all happened at the same time in the same place. No, it's it's just ridiculous. How could how could you figure it out? That was But this is so this is the reason why it's one of her most famous mysteries. Mm, because everyone gets to the end and goes, wow, I didn't didn't suspect that at all, but I guess. <laughs> I guess it adds up. Wow, very cool. So uh, thanks for thanks for coming on yeah. and making some yeah. good guesses, Will. Th- thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. If you ever need a guest again, like let me know. Great. I think it might come to that. Um, if I plan to do this for much longer, I'm going to run out of friends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're like... I feel like the mystery novel genre has so you can go through so many novels, like you'll yes. run out of friends before novels, I, I would guess. hundred percent. And I guess I hope for everyone listening at home, um, I hope you were sufficiently surprised because that's what's fun. And you can follow me on Instagram at Tuesday night mystery club. So thank you all for listening. Goodbye.